the gospel lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Mark, first verse, first chapter. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is the gospel of our Lord. So some 3,000 years ago, in China, the strategic board game Go was developed. Some believe warlords and generals based it on the stones they place on maps to determine their battle plans. Besides being the oldest continually played board game in human history, it's also one of the most complex. In modern times, being this game became known in the artificial intelligence community as the Holy Grail. Since the number of possible configurations on the board is larger than the number of atoms in the universe, it was believed that computers did not have the processing power needed to beat a skilled human player. Rising to the challenge, scientists built an artificial intelligent program called AlphaGo. The program learned to play by teaching itself, studying more than 100,000 past games. It then played against itself over and over until it was ready to challenge the reigning grandmaster of the game. In move 37 of the second match, the machine was faced with a decision that would determine the way the rest of the game would be played. There were two apparent choices to be made. Choice A was the kind of move that would signal the computer was playing a game of offense. Choice B would signal it was playing a defensive game. Instead, the computer decided to make a third move, a move no one steeped in the game had ever made in thousands of years of play. Not a single human player would choose move 37, one commentator said. Most thought it was a mistake or simply a terrible move. The grandmaster playing against the machine was so taken aback, he stood up and walked out of the room. He eventually returned, not with his usual confident composure, but visibly shaken and frustrated by the experience. In the end... AlphaGo won the game. And that never-been-seen-before move, experts said, was the one that turned the course of the game in favor of the AI. In the end, the computer won four out of five matches, and the Grandmaster permanently retired from competition. What was it that allowed a machine to devise a move no one steeped in the game had ever made in thousands of years of play? It wasn't necessarily its intelligence. 
It was the fact that the machine learned the game from scratch, with no coach, no human intervention, no lessons based on an expert's past experience. The AI followed the fixed rules, but not the millennia of accepted cultural norms attached to them. It didn't take into account the 3,000-year-old tradition and conventions of Go. It didn't accept the narrative of how to properly play this game. It wasn't held back by limiting beliefs. And so this wasn't just a landmark event in AI development. It was the first time Go had been played with the full spectrum of possibilities available. With a clean slate, AlphaGo was able to innovate, devise something completely new, and transform the game forever. If it had been taught to play by humans, it most likely wouldn't have won the tournament. Now, this story, this account, uh, if you're hoping this is going to be a, a long topical sermon on AI, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, this, this account was taken from a really lovely book that I'm working my way through by the super producer, uh, Rick Rubin, uh, you should know as a, a New York legend starting Def Jam Records from his NYU uh, dorm room. And a, quite an interesting and thoughtful person uh, who's accomplished many new things in his life, especially with arts. And he's got this book called The Creative Act, A Way of Being, and he tells this story, and then he goes on to say this about it. He calls it beginner's mind, which is a phrase you may be familiar with. Beginner's mind is starting from a pure, childlike place of not knowing, living in the moment with a, as few fixed assumptions as possible, seeing things for what they are as presented. We tend to believe that the more we know, the more clearly we can see the possibilities available, but this is not the case. Did the computer win because it knew more than the grandmaster or because it knew less? There's a great power in not knowing. When faced with a challenging task, we may tell ourselves it's too difficult. It's not worth the effort. It's not the way things are done. It's not likely to work or it's not likely to work for me. The more ingrained your adopted approach, the harder it is to see past it. Beginner's mind. A new beginning, to begin again, in the words of Jesus, to become like a child, actually like an infant is the word there. He said, unless you become like this newborn infant, you will never enter the kingdom. For to such as these, these children, belong the kingdom. They're the ones that are in it, that can see it, that know where it is, the children. And so you have to be born again to enter into it. And Advent this season, every year, is a new beginning for us. It's meant to be a start over from scratch. An invitation to, for a moment, forget and set aside the stories that you repeat to yourself over and over and over again about what makes for a good life and what you need if you'll just be happy and satisfied or what's wrong with you or what's broken. The stories that the media are trying to sell you on your devices, in your pocket, and everywhere around you all day long of every single week. To put aside these stories and allow God to be the author of your story. To write a new story in your life. One that begins here in Advent. And we're going to, as a church, walk through this story together. It's the life of Christ. 
Christ who has become ours and whose story we've inherited and whose story in life we are to live out together. We're going to walk through the story. Even now we're preparing to see the Messiah come and be born in Christmas. And so we take on the story of the people of God in order that God might do something new. Something surprising. Making a move none of us would have imagined that he could make. To make us, in fact, something new. And to become childlike, one of the easiest and most repeated ways in the Bible and in church history is to go out into the wilderness. You already heard Suzanne read Isaiah 40. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be made low. The glory of the Lord there will be revealed. And then the beginning. The beginning. Of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, who is God's son, Mark 1, 1 through 8. You heard it. I'll just read some of it again. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He'll be out in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. And then it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem and the city were going out to him in the wilderness to be baptized, to start over, to put aside their agendas and their stories their shortcomings, their sins, their successes, to set it all aside and to come out into a place where there's not much. There's a river and a lot of dirt. John's living out there clothed in camel's hair and wearing a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey and preaching that they should repent, turn and start over again, take on God's story. The wilderness is where we always make new beginnings. It's where we begin again. And that's why throughout church history, of course, this is a Judaic tradition as well, in pre, pre-Christ and all the prophets, many of the wilderness uh, kings and judges in the wilderness, Exodus itself as they went out into the wilderness. But then, of course, throughout church history, every time that the church came into power and prestige and money, there would be these movements of people monastic and otherwise, that believed that God could do something new, something deeper, something beneath all the just materialism and status quo in the city. They went out to the desert looking for the essential, the essence, looking for transformation. John the Baptist himself was most likely one of the Essenes, or at least influenced by them where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. These people lived in the desert and learned the lessons of the desert and invited people to come learn the lessons of the desert, both physically and spiritually. And this is how you get in. This is how you become born anew. Because it requires you to strip down to the essentials, right? If you're going out into the desert, you can't take much with you. You're not taking your art collection, your piano. You're maybe not even taking some of your family with you. You have to travel light. You have to go out there with not much more than you can fit in a backpack, maybe. And you're going to have to learn to be dependent on the land, not so much on your comforts of home. You have to go out there and risk vulnerability, to trust, to be in the moment, to feel your hunger, to feel your thirst, and to feel the satisfaction, even if it is 
dried crickets and honey. (laughs) See, Rick Rubin again explains it like this. He says, animals like children don't have a hard time making a decision. They act out of innate instinct and not learned behavior. This primitive force packs an ancient wisdom that science has yet to catch up with. These childlike superpowers include being in the moment, valuing play above all else, having little regard for consequences, being radically honest without consideration, having the ability to freely move from one emotion to the next without holding on to story. For for children, each moment in time is all there is. There's no future, no past. It's, I want it now. I'm hungry. I'm tired. It's pure authenticity, he says. When you see what's present around you as if for the first time, you start to realize how astonishing it all is. And so we aim to live in a way in which we see the extraordinary hidden in the seemingly mundane. And then we challenge ourselves to share what we see in a way that allows others a glimpse of this remarkable beauty. In other words, so when you go to the wilderness, you strip to your essentials. You begin to take delight in very small, ordinary things. You begin to see things differently. I love this phrase he has in the same chapter I've been recording from, and he says, innocence brings forth innovation. Being childlike, being born again is what brings new things, new life, and new worlds into being. This is what God wants to do for you and for us this Advent. Have you ever been out on a wilderness journey? Been on a really long hike? One of the things I got to do that was fun in college and post-college as a youth pastor and working with uh, the organization Young Life was take kids into the Rockies. We'd go for a whole week. You'd see some people a little bit on the way in, first day, a little bit on the way down, day seven. But the rest of the time, you were in quite majestic and threatening environment up there. And you'd hit the 14ers and you wouldn't see any wild animals all around. If you've ever done anything like that, what did you learn about yourself and about others, about teamwork, about mutual necessity, about being in the moment? What small overlooked things that you take for granted at home did you begin to delight in, to depend on, to be grateful for? There's something about being stripped of all of our normal enjoyments, being challenged, being stripped down and broken that can really reorient you, reshape you, and send you back in some ways new. And this is a challenge to us as humans because we prefer comfort. But the only road to renewal, to joy and to flourishing, passes through the desert. And so we must too. John calls us, come out into the wilderness. Repent and be baptized. Start over. Be born again. Flee your false comforts. Come out into the wilderness. And right here, when we do that, is where a new highway will be blazed, just like we do now. You take down a mountain to put a highway through it. Raise up a plane or a marsh to put a highway over it. He's saying, that's what we're going to do. We're going to grease the tracks for God to come in when we get down to the essence, when we start over, when we have beginner's mind, when we're childlike. That's when the Lord has a highway to rush in on. A highway to rush in on. We would prefer comfort. We would prefer not to change. In fact, it's become, I'm, this is maybe the third time in seven years I've uh, shared this story with you, so I think I'm just going to make it a, an Advent habit every year because I like it. Uh, so if you've, if you've heard it, you'll remember it. If not, it's still good. 
I read an article some years ago about how to avoid giving terrible Christmas gifts. Basically, the article consisted of people writing in and telling these stories about terrible gifts they'd received from a spouse or in-law or a parent. And some of them were really funny and some were really sad, but here's one that I liked. This is a quote, a terrible Christmas gift. Two years ago, I got this musical jewelry box from my mom. I'm a 22-year-old male, by the way. Also, I never wear any sort of jewelry. The worst part is pretending that I liked it. I felt really guilty about not liking it because I'm sure it had some sort of sentimental value. I just sort of put it in the corner of my closet, and then I forgot about it. She would ask me where it was or if I'd put anything in there, and I'd be like, um, yeah, see, I really like it. Thanks for the great present, Mom. But now, every time I see it, it makes me feel guilty about every single horrible thing I've ever done to my mother. Probably that's why she gave it to me. So the writer of the article goes on to say a good rule of thumb in giving gifts is never give a gift that suggests a need for change. That was the theme of most of the people that wrote in. Any gift that suggests they have a desperate need for change, whether in weight or diet or looks or, you know, whatever it may be, right? People don't like these kind of Christmas gifts. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for comfort, not for change. And so it's difficult at this time. We're all celebrating Christmas and looking forward to presents to remember that we have to begin in the wilderness. John says, Israel, come out and join me. Come out from your comforts. Come out here. He's got a hair shirt on and a belt. He's dressed like the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah. It is the clothing of the Judaic prophets. He's eating locusts, which if you think about it, is a sign of the curse of sin in the world. The locusts would come and ruin what was flourishing. He's taking that into himself, taking the proof of our rebellion into his own body, John is, eating it, as we say. But also, honey. This land flowing with milk and honey, this food of promise. And this is how you enter into and walk through the desert. You go out and you get down to the essentials of the curse and of the sin that is still within us and in our communities. And you face it. You eat it. You tell the truth about it. You ask God to show you more and more. But you do it also with honey. With hope. With hope that God is going to do a new thing precisely by this process. (laughs) That he's going to make a highway for himself so that he can more and more come until he has turned back the terrible fruits of the curse. Until there is no thorns and thistles anywhere. There is not a square inch of this universe that is not covered with his love and presence and flourishing and shalom. And so though it is hard, though it feels like discipline, though it is a strange invitation to go into the wilderness, to forget everything you think you know and start over, to have a beginner's mind, a childlike, say, teach me. I'm not going to just rest on my laurels and all the inherited traditions. I want God to do a new thing. That's how he comes and comforts us. Because the emptiness of the desert wilderness is meant to be a mirror of our own emptiness. When we empty out as the desert is emptied out, it's in that barren desert wilderness that God strips us down of all the rival comforts and he replaces those things with himself. With himself. He comes to remind us that 
Our king is coming and we are not king. See, back then, when they were making a highway, they're preparing a road, they would do like they do today. You know, the kings would come into town, they'd clean up the town. The town would get ready for the king, I mean to say. They would get rid of the potholes. They would clean up the trash. And that's true today when you know that the UN's coming in or presidents are coming in or dignitaries are coming in or cities preparing for the Olympics. Sometimes whole infrastructures are knocked down. Mountains are made low. Valleys are lifted up because a king is coming to visit. So that's why if you find yourself out in the desert wilderness this season, your comfort stripped away, it's not necessarily a bad thing. If you find yourself desperate right now this season and lonely and longing for more and hungering and thirsting for something deep and new and real, it's not necessarily a bad place. It's not something you should flee from. Get down to the essentials. What do you actually need in your life? Turn from your normal comforts and trust God to come to set up a highway and to visit you. And this is good news because it means that the actual comfort of Avon is that there is no circumstance where God will not enter into our world or into your life. If he is willing to cry comfort, comfort to my people in the midst of exile, if he's willing to offer these promises to God's people under their own circumstances, he's definitely willing to enter into our world as he did in a cold, dark manger millennia ago. And so there isn't any place where his arm of restoration and healing can't reach a new way in the wilderness this is where transformation happens do you want to be different do you want to be whole and truly deeply well do you want to be holy and filled with the life of God who made you you can do so if you will go to the wilderness and let him fill you with himself He offers himself right there. More of himself, more of his truth, more of his goodness, more of his beauty, more of his peace, more faith and hope and love for you. Do you remember the first time that the wilderness shows up in the Bible? See, it starts in a beautiful garden, right? A place of flourishing. It's not until Genesis 3 and the turning away from God as the king and also as the source of life and love and instruction, and presence, and communion. Turning away from him, they were cast out into the first wilderness. And Jesus himself, as we are preparing to celebrate, left heaven, left paradise, to come out into our wilderness, where we were cast out, and alone, and afraid, and vulnerable. He came into our wilderness. He was born anew for us. He became childlike for us. Actually, he became actually a child. Which means he entrusted himself to this wisdom of wilderness, to our vulnerability, this unknowing, this neediness. Think about him as a baby, this moment of dependence and authenticity so that we in the world might have new life. That's what he did. In his poem, Nativity, Kenneth Stephen writes this. It's very short. When the miracle happened, it was not with bright light or fire, but a farm door with a thick smell of sheep and a wind tugging at the shutters. There was no sign the world had changed forever. 
or that God had taken place. Just a child crying softly in a corner and the door open for those who came to find. Reflecting on this poem, the author Jamie Smith says this, we look for God in the extraordinary and God arrives incarnate in the mundane, even abject, hidden right before our eyes. We're waiting and waiting and miss the fact that God has taken place. Perhaps because we keep scanning the horizons for meteoric arrivals or maybe because we're too distracted. What if the arrival happened and we're only still waiting because we couldn't recognize it? Maybe what we're waiting for is not the arrival but the healing of our attention so that we might see where God has already taken place. Wilderness is the beginning of his ministry, of Jesus. It's a new start. And so for us, we can begin again today, this Advent season, to head out into the wilderness, leave our comforts behind, be stripped down to our essentials, and find God here. In the backyard shed, among the animals, in your apartment, on your sidewalks, here, ready to help you see him like a child, to begin again. Let's begin together, shall we? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you.